He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. Well, one of the major tasks for the churches of the Reformation was to figure out a new church calendar. Roman Catholicism continues to follow an annual church calendar that celebrates many, many holidays throughout the year. Sometimes it can be hyperbolically stated that every single Sunday is a holiday plus some in between. Now, many of the Protestant churches, in fairness, did keep either that calendar or a very similar calendar. So not all Protestants are united in kind of limiting the church calendar. But for many of the Reformed churches, there was an agreement that the Bible just didn't seem to give us the permission to sort of turn so many things into commemorative feast days. But they did agree that there was a precedent in Scripture to turn some things into these kind of commemorative feast days. And so again, their task was... What's a holiday? What's worthy of a holiday? What should we be making feast days? And there, over time, became a, a widespread agreement. Now, again, this wasn't unanimous, especially among the Puritan Reformation. Uh, the Puritans believed that there was no scriptural precedence for holidays whatsoever, and so they rejected all of them. But the earlier reformers came up with what we today know as the five evangelical feast days. So the early reformers did technically have a church calendar, but it was very simple as it revolved around five holidays. Or another way to think of it are what are the five major New Testament events of God that deserve our commemoration in a special and unique way? Uh, the, the three obvious ones, the three no-brainers were Christmas, Good Friday, and Easter. Uh, if the incarnation, death, Resurrection of Christ don't deserve commemoration, then the Puritans are right. Nothing does, right? So those were sort of the easy ones. But there were some other ones that they had to wrestle with. So uh, fourth one that they believed this is very, very significant was Pentecost. So they continued to celebrate Pentecost. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit is absolutely seen as an incredible act of God and certainly something that marks the transition from the Old into the New Covenant. But that leaves us with only four. There was actually a fifth one. And I bring this up because this goes for myself included. I'm not just talking about everyone else but me. There was a final feast day which admittedly, I think, in evangelicalism in America has really lost its popularity. And that is the Ascension. Or what we refer to as Ascension Sunday. They added to their list Ascension Sunday. That is the day that we celebrate Christ, not just his resurrection, but what he did after his resurrection, which is that he ascended into the heavens. I believe that we perhaps have lost just how important and significant that event is. And so may the Lord use our time in the creed and in the scripture today to remind us of just how important Christ's ascension into heaven is. Would you open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 7, beginning in verses 23 and through 27. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 23. When you found it, I would invite you to stand. Hebrews chapter 7, beginning in verse 23, Thus saith the Lord, The former priests were many in number, because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently, because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. 
He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. This bars the reading of God's word. Please be seated. Forty days after Christ's resurrection, after doing ministry, further teaching, he takes his disciples out to a town called Bethany. And there he literally and physically ascended into heaven. His body was carried off of the earth and translated into heaven. The Apostle Luke is sort of our key eyewitness to this event. He's the one who gives us the most descriptive um, details. He tells us, for example, in his gospel, saying, And he led them out as far as Bethany. And lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. But he not only records this in his gospel, he records it in his history as well, because he is the author of the book of Acts, which says that, And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go in to heaven. So the Nicene Creed, as you can tell, is right to affirm this historical biblical doctrine. Christ did, in fact, ascend into heaven. However, we have to always keep in mind that the creed is is presenting this as an element, a part of God's plan of salvation. This is something that Christ did for us men and for our salvation. The creed, it's not in our little statement here, but when you read it in its full context, the creed is saying that if he did not ascend into heaven, you were dead in your sins. This is something incredibly important for our salvation. And so our task then today is not to just merely say, look, the Bible teaches he ascended into heaven. But to, to, to explore why this is so important. Why did it need to be stated in the creed? And what bearing it, does it have on our salvation? And we're going to dive into this pretty deeply. But I'm going to present to you, and I think the creed symbolic, symbolically presents to you two answers to that question. Why does the ascension matter? And the two brief answers are because the ascension establishes Christ as our Lord and our priest. The ascension establishes Christ as our Lord and our priest. We've taught many times in this church That for Christ to be our mediator, for him to be the Messiah, required him to fulfill what we call a threefold office. There were three Old Testament offices with different men in those offices, and Christ had to fulfill all of them. And those offices are prophet, priest, and king. And the ascension is focusing on those latter two. If it were not for the ascension, we could not rightly consider Christ our king. We could not rightly consider him our priest. He is our final king and our final priest. And I think that both of those offices are symbolized in the creed because the creed tells us, even though they're the same place, it it's technically tells us two different places he has gone. He has gone into heaven, but he has also gone to the Father's right hand. It singles those things out because they are both symbolic of these two things. So for example, sitting at Christ's right hand, this is symbolic of him as king. This is symbolic of Christ's lordship. Because God the Father obviously does not have a right hand. So clearly there's something metaphoric going on here, right? He is spirit, so he doesn't have hands. 
and he's infinite, so he doesn't have a right or a left side. So this is very much symbolic. So what, what does it symbolically mean for Christ to be seated at the Father's right hand or to be seated with the Father? Well, this is an appeal when the scriptures use this language, and they are appealing to a custom among first century monarchies. And that custom was that a king would oftentimes appoint a governor, or maybe he might have some other title. But kings had the authority to appoint someone to rule in their stead. You've got a big empire. It's hard for the king to enforce and make laws hundreds of miles away. So they can appoint someone to rule in their stead. So wherever this appointed person is, he bears the same authority as the king. What he says, the king has said. To disobey him is to disobey the king. And this person was oftentimes described as sitting at the king's right hand. He carried with him the authority and the power of the king. And that's what a right hand symbolizes, power and authority, right? We, to some degree, it's become way, way watered down. But we have, to some degree, carried this metaphor into our culture, where sometimes you might have a person who you can always rely on, who knows you really, really well, and you might refer to them as your right-hand man. They're always helping you out. You can always count on them. That's kind of like a watered-down version of sitting at the right hand of the king. So when we say that Christ has ascended to the right hand of the Father, or that he is seated with the Father, what we are saying is that he is Lord. That he has authority and dominion and power over all the created universe. To disagree with Jesus is to disagree with God. To be judged by Jesus is to be judged by God. He has the authority, the dominion, and the power as God himself. So in short, what we are saying is that Christ is Lord. And so you can very much think of the ascension like a crowning ceremony. After Christ conquered sin and death... God gloriously entered him into heaven's throne room in the presence of the angels, in the presence of the departed saints who are there, and they placed the crown upon the head of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. This is why we will often refer to his ascension as his second and final state of exaltation. First he was humiliated in that he was born and then he died, but then he was exalted in that he resurrected and then his final exaltation was into heaven. And that's why our author of Hebrews actually calls it that. Look at verse 26. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He wasn't just raised there. He was exalted there. This is glory. This is vindication. This is crowning. But the person who says it even more clearly than the author of Hebrews is the Apostle Paul in Philippians. I want to read this together. This is a famous Christmas text, but it's also an ascension text. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, there's our first humiliation, by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself, there's our second humiliation, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus has been made Lord. He has been brought to the Father's right hand and pronounced as King. That's what we state in the Ascension. And what's really, really powerful about this is like we talked about last week, the gospel is in the Old Testament. 
And I think I could make the argument that the ascension is more explicitly prophesied in the Old Testament than even the resurrection is. As a matter of fact, many of our Old Testament proofs of the resurrection are actually just the logical outflows of ascension. Because you cannot ascend a person who's dead. So we prove the resurrection by proving the ascension. And there are many examples of the Old Testament that clearly prophesy an ascension. The, 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 the crowning example, though, comes from the prophet Daniel, who says this in Daniel 7. He has two amazing prophetic visions, and this is his second one. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, just like Luke told us, glory clouds, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So isn't this amazing? Daniel sees the Son of Man, so this is a human being we're talking about, riding on a cloud of glory up to the eternal God, up to the Ancient of Days. And as this human being is carried on the clouds up into God's presence, what has happened in that moment is he is given a kingdom and dominion and power and glory. In other words, Daniel prophesied that Christ would ascend on a cloud to the Father's right hand and be made Lord. And it's not just Daniel who saw this. David himself prophesied this in a psalm, which by the way, this psalm, this verse we're about to look at is the most often referenced Old Testament verse in the New Testament. I jokingly refer to it as the Apostle's favorite Bible verse. It's Psalm 110.1, where David writes, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So this verse describes our Lord, David's Lord, sitting at the Lord's right hand. The Lord said to my Lord, our Lord is at the right hand of the Lord. And he's sitting there because he is now powerful. And his, through God's power, he is making his enemies fall. That's what kings do. This is kingdom language. This is power language. He is at the right hand of God. And so we see that the ascension matters because it is the official commemoration and consummation of the Lordship of Christ. However, you might have noticed that we've, we've strayed pretty far away from our Hebrews 7 passage. And I did that on purpose. Um, because while the ascension, I, wanted, I hope I've made clear, it very, very much communicates this issue of lordship. We technically have already covered that in length. We had a whole sermon in the creed earlier when we referred to Christ as our one Lord. So I wanted to pick a text that focused more on this second aspect of the ascension. So the first one is the lordship of Christ. But we're going to spend most of our time dealing with this second aspect, which is that the ascension also establishes him as our priest. In other words, we want to talk today about the priesthood of Christ. Let's go back to our text and look at verses 26 through 28. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. But the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. 
Do you see how very clearly the author of Hebrews here is, is situating Christ, not just his perfection and his holiness, but the fact that he has ascended into heaven. He's saying this situates him as a priest. And then the whole passage is why he's a better priest than all of the Old Testament high priests, but a priest he is nonetheless. The ascension and the priesthood of Christ have a very intimate and important connection. And the first thing that we learn about our priest is that he is exalted above the heavens. That's where Christ ascended to. He ascended above the heavens. Or as we say in the creed, he is ascended into heaven. And this is the key. Heaven here is an important symbolic reminder of Christ's priesthood. His throne, sitting at God's right hand, is the symbolic reminder of his lordship. But heaven is the reminder of his priesthood. So let me break that down a bit. What is heaven? Where is heaven where Christ went? In a certain sense, it's not a place the way you and I think of a place. Because we would say it's, to some degree, whatever this means, outside of this dimension. It's a real place. It's, it's a created place. But it's not something you could theoretically travel to on a rocket ship. In scripture, there, there's a multiple use of heavens, plural. Sometimes you'll even see a reference to three heavens. The first heaven to ancient people was the sky. So your King James Bible might have Jesus saying something like, look at the birds in heaven. Right? So I, I joke around and say, every time you get on an airplane, you go to heaven. So congratulations. The sky is the heaven. That's heaven, sky, for, for our biblical authors. Everything outside of the sky, which we today would call outer space, everything outside of earth then becomes the second heaven. So the birds are in the first heaven. The moon is in the second heaven. The stars are in the second heaven. But then the authors will talk, and those are kind of our two main heavens in Scripture, the earth above us and then beyond the earth. But then the Scriptures will sometimes talk about a heaven above those heavens. A heaven outside of those heavens. A heaven of those heavens. Or on rare occasions, the third heaven. The heaven above the heavens. The third heaven. The heaven outside of the heavens. What is this place? That is the place Christ has gone to. The Apostle Paul says this in Ephesians 4.10. That he who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. He is outside now of what we consider our space-time continuum. He is in the heaven above the heavens. This is the place where angels make their abode. This is a place where our spirits go to be with Christ when we die. This is a place that is designed for the worship and the contemplation and communion of God. This is the place where God is most intensely present. And all of those descriptions I just gave are why when you think of it, you should immediately think of a sanctuary. What we're saying in the creed is that heaven is not just God's throne room. It's his temple. Heaven is not just the throne of a kingdom, it's also a sanctuary. And when you think of the word sanctuary, you need to think of a priest. Just like when you think of a throne, you think of a king. When you think of a temple, you need to think of a priest. So when we talk about Christ going into heaven, we're talking about him becoming our priest. And by the way, the very author of our text makes it explicit that the Old Testament temple on earth was built and designed by God to be a shadow, a symbol of heaven. Right? Keep your marker in Hebrews 7, but turn over just a couple chapters to Hebrews chapter 9. We're going to read a long passage. 
But it won't need a lot of explanation. Let's read the first verse. uh, Let's read through verse 12. And pay attention to the comparisons between the tent, which is just another name for the tabernacle, which became the temple. So the tabernacle and the temple are basically the same thing. It's just the temple was a more solid structure. But this is the Old Testament sanctuary, Hebrews chapter 9. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which there was the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Those are angels. Of these things we cannot speak now in detail. These preparations having been thus made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties, but into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. Now here is where it gets really key. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Wow. The Old Testament tent, the temple, it symbolized heaven. It was this beautiful and holy place where God's presence dwelt. His law was there. The angels are there. And there was this very holy place that only the high priest could enter into to offer a sacrifice. And it explicitly in verses 11 refers to this, the heavens as the greater temple, the greater holy of holies. And that our high priest has entered into that place where no one else can go and he brought blood with him. Heaven is the greater tabernacle. It's the greater tent. It's the more perfect tent. It's not the one that was built with, with, with hands. It is God's created place. It's an extra dimensional place. It's not of this creation, but it is a sanctuary. It is a holy of holies, and it is where our high priest has gone, and he went there in his ascension. And so the connection that we need to see as we go back to our Hebrew 7 text is that what do high priests do in the Holy of Holies? Why are they there? And they're there to intercede. Look at verses 23 through 25. Hebrews 7. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. You see, the people of Israel were in constant need of a mediator. But there's a problem. People die. They would elect a mediator and he would die. So now we don't have a mediator, so someone else would have to take his place. And you just compete this, you know, do this over and over again for hundreds of years. But here's the good news about Jesus. He conquered death. 
death no longer has reign over him. Jesus literally cannot die. So when he became our high priest, we now have no expectation of a forerunner. We have no expectation of someone else taking his role because he's never going to die. So he is now a permanent high priest, an everlasting high priest, a high priest who has no successor. He lives forever. He is the final and permanent fulfillment of the high priest. This is why the Apostle Paul can so comfortably tell us, or forgive me. Oh, I think I forgot the verse. Well, I'll just read it to you in 1 Timothy 2. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. We have one final mediator, one perfect priest who intercedes between us and God. But I want us to see that this text is very clear, that this intercession is necessary for our salvation. The text says it is only because he lives forever that the consequences are that he can save us to the uttermost. Right? Look at verse 25. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost. How? Because those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. If you don't have intercession, you do not have salvation. The ascension of Christ was a necessary act of God for our salvation. Because salvation is something that is constantly, perpetually in need of mediation and intercession. I think the best way I can explain this is with an analogy. I made it up, so it might not be great, it might be a little crude, but it's the best that I can do. I've spent a lot of my time as a Christian, as a young Christian, sort of mistakenly thinking of salvation like it's a tattoo. Right? Like God, a tattoo is permanent. It's forever. Right? Someone puts it on your skin and now it's there. And that's kind of how I thought of salvation. Like God saves me. He tattoos salvation on my soul. And now it's stuck. Right? Now I've got it forever. Saved to the uttermost. Glory to God. But that's not really the way that the scriptures present salvation. Because the problem with that analogy is even though the tattoo is permanent, the tattooing is not permanent. Right? In order for a tattoo to be permanent, the tattoo artist doesn't have to follow you around for the rest of your life tattooing. Right? He just has a very brief, depending on how big the tattoo is, 30 minutes to a couple hours. You know, just, you're there for an hour, and then he stops his work. And it's stuck with you. And that's kind of how I saw salvation. Right? Christ was on the cross for three hours, I don't know, six hours, however long it was. Took him six hours, and now I'm saved forever. But that's not how Hebrews 7 presents salvation. A better analogy for salvation, this might be a little crude, but I like to think salvation more like an IV. Have you ever had to go to the hospital or go to an emergency room? And a very common thing you do there is, is you'll get hooked up to an IV. All right, so there'll be a bag of liquid above your head, usually either water or some kind of medicine that you need. And then you'll have a tube and a needle and it'll connect into your skin. You'll have this very deep and intimate union with this bag. And then it just kind of constantly drips water. It just kind of constantly drips whatever medicine you need. All, all of your, your dehydration or your illness, whatever it is, there's just kind of constant stream communication between you and the bag. That is more of a picture of salvation. A picture of salvation in Scripture is not Jesus just tattooing it on your soul and then now you're good forever. The picture is that Jesus, through his intercession, has union with us so that he can constantly communicate the benefits of what he has done to us. So that at any point in time, if you take out the IV, if at any point in time Christ stops his intercession, all your sins come rushing back on you. 
The cross is pointless and the resurrection is pointless if you do not have constant, perpetual union with Christ. It's not a tattoo. He is constantly in heaven feeding salvation into us. And this is why his intercession is mandatory for our salvation. Because he always lives to intercede. It's not a one-time thing. It's a perpetual, all-times thing. This is why the Apostle Paul describes it this way. Who is to condemn? Why are you not afraid of condemnation? If you're a Christian, you're not afraid of the condemnation of God. Why? Is it because God tattooed salvation onto your soul? Because God gave you a, a golden ticket? No. Why are we not afraid of condemnation? Because Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. All of your hope, all of your confidence in your salvation is found in the fact that Christ forever lives for you. He intercedes for us. We, 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 we had a similar exhortation and encouragement during our time of confession of sins. Why are you not afraid of your future sins? One of the first controversies that sprung up in Christianity, which to me it just shows us how quickly I think things went off the rails, was there was this question, well, if baptism forgives sins, people are baptized, their sins are forgiven, great, now they're saved. But what happens if I sin after my baptism? Does the baptism forgive my future sins? And so there was these debates. Constantine and many people believed you should be baptized on your deathbed because there was no hope of salvation after baptism if you sinned. Others the Roman Catholic Church came up with different sacraments. So baptism forgives your old sins, but then you sin and you need this sacrament. There's been all these answers to how do we, how are we, you know, forgiven of our future sins? But our answer in this church is I'm not afraid of my future sins. I, I believe my future sins are already taken care of. Why? Because Christ lives for me. This is exactly what John says. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. So don't sin. This is not, Christ's intercession is not an excuse to sin. Not fearing condemnation is not an excuse to sin. You should not sin. But what happens if you do? If you do sin, there's another sacrament for you. If you do sin, well, you should have waited until you were baptized on your deathbed. No. What happens if you sin tomorrow? But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. The reason I'm not afraid of my sins tomorrow is not because I know that there's some second, third dairy sacrament. I'm not afraid because I have a mediator. I have an advocate in heaven. I have an intercessor before God in heaven. And that means he must be there permanently. If he was only my intercessor on the cross, but he's not my intercessor today, then I should be afraid of my sins today. But you and I have an advocate who dwells on our behalf forever. And by the way, one thing that you might enjoy hearing is it's not just our sins that need mediation. Our good works need mediation too. The reason, not just that your sins are pardoned, but the reason that on judgment day, God can actually accept your good works and reward you for them, it's not because... Those works by themselves are just so great that God just owes you a reward. That's very far from the truth. As a matter of fact, the prophet Isaiah says, even your righteous deeds are filthy rags before a holy God. The reason God will reward us on judgment day for our good works is not because they're so great, because we're so great. It's because they're in Christ. 
Because even our good works, which are still stained with the weaknesses and fallings of our flesh, even our good works are purified in Christ and brought to the throne room of God so that Christ purifies not just our sins, but even our righteous deeds so that God can be pleased with them. Do you know that God is pleased with your worship today? You know, God has looked down upon you with nothing but pleasure and nothing but delight. Even though I think all of us would admit, I'm probably not worshiping God as good as I could be. I'm probably not as engaged as I could be. I'm probably not as joyful as I could be. I'm probably not as focused as I could be. Your perfection of worship, it falls short, but God is delighted in it. How? Because we have a mediator. Because we have an intercessor. Even our good works need intercession. We are saved because Christ ascended into heaven, which makes him not just our Lord, but our priest, who always lives to make intercession for us so that we might be saved to the uttermost. So what is it that you should take away from our time in Hebrews 7 today, our time in the creed? I think I can put it simply as this, that Jesus' ascension establishes him as our priest and our king forever. Why does the ascension matter? Because the ascension establishes him as our priest and our king forever. But before we end, I want to remind you of the very important way that Christ's ascension impacts your life. Like the priesthood and the lordship of Christ, that's what you learn. But how does that affect our hearts? How does that change the way we live? And I want to give you two ways that the ascension of Christ should impact your life every single day. And that is evangelical obedience and gospel assurance. Evangelical obedience and gospel assurance. Right? So because Christ is Lord, what are you supposed to do to lords and kings? You obey them. You submit to them. The lordship of Christ, the ascension of Christ, reminds us that we need to obey his commands. Little children, I'm writing to you that you may not sin. However... Part of obedience to Christ is obeying with the right motivations. It's obeying for the right reasons. To obey with wrong motivations is actually, for Christ the King, not obedience at all. Let me give you an example of that. If you're obeying God's law in order to earn your salvation, you are actually in disobedience. Even if you're going through the motions correctly, you are not pleasing God. For to believe that my works save me is to simultaneously deny that I need a mediator. It's to deny that I I don't need Jesus. I've earned this. I don't need a high priest. I got myself here. It is disobedience. True obedience is what we call evangelical obedience, meaning we obey because we have a mediator, not in order to gain one. We obey because we've been saved to the uttermost, not so that we will be. That's evangelical. It's from the gospel. It's from our salvation. It's a response to the goodness of God that we obey Christ Jesus as our Lord. So what's the first way to apply the ascension? Go have gospel obedience. Don't go earn your salvation. But because you're saved, go follow Christ the King. But the second and important thing you have is not just evangelical obedience, but gospel assurance. What happens when you fall short in that task? What happens when you don't obey Christ the King? Well, you need to be reminded that you have an advocate in heaven who constantly lives on your behalf, who forever and permanently mediates salvation. And so what should you have then? You should have hope. You should have confidence. So that's why I'm calling this gospel assurance. 
You should have assurance that just because you fall short, you are still loved by God. That's what the ascension means for us. We're still loved by God. Assurance is so vital. As a matter of fact, earlier in the gospel, or forgive me, earlier in the book of Hebrews, this theme was brought up. The author says this, Since then we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens. So you see again the connection between the ascension and priesthood. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. It is because of the ascension that we have confidence, that we have assurance that I can come before God and expect grace. I can come before God and expect mercy. Why? Because I have a mediator. Because I have an intercessor. In short, my hope is that we will all leave here today knowing that Christ is Lord and that he is worthy of our obedience. But he is also priest. So that all of us together, so that you, with great assurance and confidence, can sing before the throne of God, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. So that when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of all the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Great high priest whose name is love.